Welcome to the Salted Podcast, where we are translating and transforming our view of politics, pop culture, and personal preference. In this episode, we discuss climate change and how do we as Christians avoid the extremes of alarmism and apathy as we seek to be good stewards of God's good creation. Let's get salted. What is up, world? My name is Yon. This is Dan. And you have joined the Salted Podcast episode, historic anniversary of episode number 16. Ooh. Everyone knows once you get to 16 podcast episodes, you've really made it. Yeah, if you listen once a month, you've crossed over a year of listening. Oh, wow. That's pretty impressive So math congratulations. For a pastor. Congratulations. <laughs> yes, congratulations, everybody. Today... Or this episode, we are discussing climate change Ooh. and how do we approach that as Jesus followers. And if you stick around long enough, uh, we're going to have a personal preference around sports ball. And Ooh, what, sports ball. Yes, I've never heard that. What's your preferred sports <laughs> ball medium in which you engage? So it's such a condescending Why term. is that? That sounds so funny, though, those two words together. Right, yeah. It's funny, and then when you talk about you use sports ball a lot, everyone's like, oh, wait, we are just literally talking about a ball. A sports ball, yeah. My life revolves around it. But we're going to talk about it because sports ball is important. Yes. uh, But for now, we are talking about climate change. And how do we even approach this topic? Should we? Should we approach the topic? Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Yes. And ironically, lots um, lots of strong feelings on both sides around what is... You know, what is, what is climate change? Um, what's the impact of climate change? Specifically, what is the role of humanity and our contribution to a changing climate? Yeah. And are we, are we on the fast track to uh, catastrophe? Correct, yes. And this is, I think, the hot-button topic is the reason we're discussing it is because there's a bit of an eschatological <laughs> bend to the conversation as well the words are red hot around it right i mean as far as the topic goes now if if an environmentalist an activist type is describing what we're facing the words aren't um passive or neutral by any stretch yeah it's a pretty dire picture that's being painted by a lot of people and so we're going to actually spend some time diagnosing translating all this stuff and seeing um what what some of the the facts are around these dire predictions and then we obviously will do what we do all the time and speak to the gospel-centered biblical approach to to how do we as Christians and God's representatives on earth approach the, the topic right. of the environment. How can we salt the earth in this area? Yes, yeah. and in this case, literally salting the earth would probably be problematic. Is that that bad for the environment? You just, oh, doesn't that kill question. stuff? I think, oh, that's a good question. It preserves things. Oh. Those preserved plants? Yeah. Oh, you just throw salt on things and it's good? Of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've missed the whole premise yeah, of our title. In the world. <laughs> I just thought it killed things. <laughs> yes, the Salted Podcast. <laughs> Learn to kill the earth in culture and politics. No, we're after a good start. See, episode number 16, it's all downhill. We've already made it. I'm just throwing it to the wind. Um, so what are some of the, the, the conversations around? If you pay attention to the news and maybe... You spent the last couple of years paying attention. There's a couple of, of key moments, and you think, well, what are both sides of this conversation, and what are what are they saying? There's a couple of key things that are being said primarily, in that one side really kind of says that man-made, human-influenced in um, climate change will kill the planet, 
and it's an existential threat to both humanity and all life on Earth. So by existential, you're you're probably, you mean it's a threat to our existence. Yes. Right? Okay. It is like, there's a very few things that rise to the existential yeah. threat, right? Um, and it's really primarily caused by humanity's selfishness and recklessness mm. and exploitation of the Earth. Um, this is there's a couple of people who have who have articulated the direness uh, of this um, potential outcome, and there's a couple um, organizations. One organization is pretty famous on the news, and they're primarily kind of in Great Britain, but they're called Extinction Rebellion, which is a cool name. Yeah, so they're like the Avengers. Um, but they were interviewed by the BBC, and they said, "quote uh, Billions of people are going to die. Life on Earth is dying, and governments aren't addressing it." So, um, real positive. I think it's going well, but uh, billions of people are going to die. And then, if you listen to the, um, there's a, the, there's lots of activists and politicians who are claiming that man-made climate change will lead to extinction based on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mm-hmm. and that's the IPCC um, reports. And you'll hear that a lot if you engage this yeah. conversation. Um, and really, a couple prominent people like AOC, right from New York, um, in 2019 was interviewed and essentially said millennials and people, you know, Gen Z, it's weird to read the transcript of an interview, right? you it know, uh, and Gen Z and all these folks that will come after us are lock, lock, looking up and we're like, this world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. And your biggest issue is how we're going to pay for it. So she's describing 12 years. She put the market down and said 12 years, it's going to, it's the world's going to end. Yeah. I mean, that's a reasonable question if you believe that there's an existential threat to end humanity. It makes sense to say, if that's happening, if we can agree on that, why would you be question? Why, why would the why next question? Money? Yeah, why is the first question? Can we afford it? <laughs> right. Yeah. How to, much does it cost to save hu- right. humanity's existence? Right. right? So, um, there's another one. Uh, obviously, if you've, if you've, fam- Greta is pretty famous, right? Yeah. How dare you? That's a famous, um, wonderful speech given. But what she essentially says is that. You know, her quote is, my message is that we'll be watching you, which is which is nice. And this is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us. She's speaking to the you in climate speech. You all come to us, young people, for hope. And she says, how dare you? And then she goes on to say, you have stolen my dreams, my childhood with your empty words. I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can do is talk about money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. So entire ecosystems collapsing, mass extinction. That's amazing. Um, and then our defense secretary, Lloyd Austin III, um, in one of his recent addresses, uh, identified climate change as one of the few existential threats wow. facing the United States. Wow. So when he's looking at the global threat portfolio he identifies and says there's few things that rise to the existential threat he's a military guy he's a military guy yeah and so um so you can kind of get an an idea of this well-rounded picture of it's pretty dire yeah the future um and so there's kind of a number and if you pay any attention to this there's a number that people are going to keep referencing and the and the point it's kind of essentially the point of no return number and they say if the temperature of the global temperature rises one and a half degrees Celsius, that's essentially the point of no return. Yon, how many degrees is that Fahrenheit? Oh, I should have looked that up. You, I knew it. <laughs> I, know. I knew you were an American no. exceptionalist. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, ironically, that was one of the biggest things I had to learn coming from Canada to the United States. 
What is that? What is it like? I have no idea. How do I not know that? Well, se- I do know this, that a 70-degree day <laughs> is 20 degrees Celsius, I think. We're just going to discredit ourselves as we continue I think so. I think so. <laughs> Listen, we're not meteorologists, yeah, for right? Out loud. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> someone, as you're listening, pause, look up one and a half degrees Celsius conversion to Fahrenheit, okay? So we may or may not be doing that as we speak, yeah. right? <laughs> so, but that's the number, all right? One and a half degrees Celsius global temperature increase. That's the, for lack of a better term, the drop dead point of no return. It says if that happens, there'll be such catastrophic events that are irreversible. Um, and so you, there's actually a, a website called climateclock.world, and it actually counts down the days that they think we will be able to, that we're going to be reaching that catastrophic irreversible. And currently, as of the recording, it's seven years, 268 days. 10 hours. So that's how far away we are from reaching this one and a half degree uh, Celsius in global temperature increase. And that is essentially what everyone is pointing to saying, once this happens, that's why we're going to, it's a, you're going to see mass extinction and billions of people die. So, and so when that happens, there's a couple irreversible tipping points that, you know, what are some of the, the, the outcomes when you hit that? Um, some of the things that they have identified and what makes it an extinction-level event uh, or billions of people dying. And a couple things, sea level. I mean, this is a popular one. If you if you listen to any climate uh, change conversations, it's sea levels rise, um, slowing the circulation of water in the Atlantic Ocean, which then changes surface temperatures, which then you know, melts um, icebergs the size of Australia, in releasing 1,400 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere. Um, you have an increased frequency and intensity of extreme natural disasters. Um, sea levels could rise 13 feet. Um, so some really pretty big issues that arise if this 1.5 degree um, Celsius increase happens. This Which is, is about 3 degrees Fahrenheit. 3 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah, yes. That's what all of our Twitter followers are updating yeah, they, me they, right now live. They pinged you live. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Thank um, you, Twitterverse. That's right. Um, and so bad things are, the one side of the argument says bad things are in store so bad that sea levels are going to rise, uh, eco, entire ecosystems are going to be destroyed, and billions of people are going to die, which seems pretty bad. Um, yeah, and and if you believe that, it would make sense that there's a level of urgency that presses you to seem, um, you know, borderline crazy. Because if you believe that's true, you'd be you'd be crazier not to have that urgency. Right. Yeah. I mean, something like Elon Musk. It's like, well, why is Elon Musk trying to get to Mars? Well, Elon Musk, when you think when you listen to him, he's trying to get to Mars to escape climate change and then to escape artificial intelligence. And so he thinks it's important enough to fly to a different planet and inhabit another planet. Um, so he's kind of on that track. And, and so that's, a, you, like you said, it's a good, you can say, well, if you really cared about it and if you really thought this was going to happen, then your activism is, you know. It's a okay. virtue. Yep. Yeah. So we'll actually talk about that a little bit later and how it has, it emerges and evolves into a moral and ethical conversation yeah. and less about an environmental conversation. Right. So. But that's one side. I mean, that's very stark um, extremist um, language. Um, but there are some other, you know, the question is, are those valid concerns? Right. Is climate change really, literally right. an existential threat to humanity, to you and to me, our family, our right. children? 
Yep. Uh, yeah, the human race. Yeah, and I think it's an important question to ask because normally when you talk about this conversation, the thing that comes up is the science is settled, right? The science right. is settled. The science is settled. There's almost no. There's no room for dissent in any of it, simply because. They, if they believe it's really that bad, then they think that that's, that's what the science says. Then there's no point in debating it. While yeah. someone would be labeled a climate denier, right? Right. A climate right. change denier. If they even asked a question, wait, is that actually true? That's right. And plus, if you left room, if you were a if you were an environmentalist, this this level of activism, right? And you did not believe the science was settled, or you were open to the possibility that wasn't settled. How could you possibly get across urgency? Sure. Yeah. Right, because you're you're not on the response side. Right. You're on the um, discovery side, right. the research side. You're like, right. whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's slow down a little bit. Yes. And take a look at it. It's like, well, we don't have any time to exactly. slow down. What are you? You're just yeah. Yep. And then there's I was always, always accusations about motiv- motivations and who's behind the research, and that's a that's a kind of a consistent in our culture today. Is can you trust the information? Right. Trust the quote unquote science? And so, but there's a book that I couldn't recommend more highly, and it's by a gentleman named Michael Schellenberger. It's called Apocalypse Never, um, and hmm. he's not a He's not one of those climate denier, like it wouldn't be labeled a climate change denier, but he lays out a pretty compelling argument about where it is. And he's spoken to a lot of first primary source scientists that are used in the IPCC report. And he was trying to validate, say, well, I've heard the language around 12 years, eight years, you know, extinction level events. Is it actually accurate? Is it an existential threat? And so he spoke to a couple people. Uh, but if you get time to read a book, listen to a book, um, listen to this episode four or five times in a row, and then go listen to that book. Okay, um, double our listeners. Does that does that how it works? Um, so here's a couple. There are a couple of people he quotes uh, as he was trying to investigate: Are these claims of catastrophic existential destruction? Um, valid. And so he spoke to a couple people. So there's a NASA scientist named Gavin Schmidt. Um, he uses some colorful language. He says, all the time-limited frames are BS. He says, nothing special happens when the carbon budget, quote-unquote, runs out or we pass whatever temperature target you care about. Instead, the costs of emissions steadily rise. Uh, and he's what? What's his role? He's a NASA climate scientist. Uh, so he's no, no huh. schlep, as my, my dad would say, no schlep. Um, Andrea Dutton, a paleoclimate researcher at University of Wisconsin-Madison, says, for some reason, the media latched onto the 12 years, essentially 2030, uh-huh. presumably because they thought it, that it helped to get across the message of how quickly we are approaching this and hence how urgently we need action. Unfortunately, this has led to a complete mischaracterization, mischaracterization of what the report said, that IPCC okay. report. So she's saying those, those doomsday predictions are not accurate. Stanford University atmospheric scientist... Um, one of the first scientists to raise the alarm about ocean acidification, mm-hmm. which everyone knows him, and everyone's always talking about ocean acidification. That's why I don't go to the ocean. That's right. Do I want to get acidified? Of course no. I don't. No. I mean, what are we talking about here? Uh, that's why you went to camp on one of our personal preferences. <laughs> exactly. Beach or camp. Thanks for remembering that. Yeah. You know. um, he says, while many species are threatened with extinction, climate change does not threaten human extinction. That's pretty... So wow. the mass extinction event, not, not necessarily true in his eye. MIT client scientist says, I don't have much patience for the apocalypse criers. I don't think it's helpful to, to describe it as an apocalypse. Wow. And um, Michael Schellenberger, who wrote the book, who happens to be a, you know, he's an IPCC. He, he's, an, he's like a validator or he, he looked at it and helped write the American version. Oh. Um, 
So he's on the he's on the activist side. Yeah, he actually he got a he got a Time Magazine Hero of the Environment award for his book, his green book. Um, and he, he started an organization called the Stevens Institute of Technology Center for Science Writings, and huh. he invited expert reviewer of the of that intergovernmental pan, panel and climate change report. So he's actually was invited to review the report that everyone's talking about oh. as an expert. So he's no. He's no outsider. This is his world. This no is where schlep. he lives, and he's, in, he's no schlep, and he's winning awards for stuff. Um, he huh. just essentially said is that the IPCC did not say the world would end, nor that civilization would collapse if temperature roses one and a half degrees. That's essentially his conclusion as he's interviewing all these people, and wow. he's trying to investigate it. So, so you know, and this is, I mean, who has access, unless you're well-read, unless you're well-read, who has access to the... To, NASA climate scientists, paleoclimate researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Stanford University atmospheric scientists, and MIT clients, uh, climate scientists, or Schellenberger, who reviews these reports that come out of this think tank, unless you're reading all of this sure. all the time, yep. right? Instead, you've got to go with what Greta Thorn Thurnberg, yep. Thurnberg says, so which is, shame on all of you for ruining yep. the earth, my future... And um, we have 12, of course, it's not 12 anymore, right? We've got um, eight, about eight yeah. years yeah. left before catastrophic existential um, ending to the human race. And that's the message. Uh, I mean, you could browse TED Talks and see all the TED Talks sure. on. It's over. Yep. It's over. Yep. So, so. That's why this is such an incredibly important topic, like the one, like the ones we're trying to tackle on this format uh, and have these conversations around. Because most people don't read, right. cannot. I shouldn't say don't. They can't read yeah. these different whatever. So, so Schellenberger comes through as a as a breakthrough, credible resource to basically say this report that everybody <laughs> has read and reviewed did not say that there is a catastrophic existential right. threat coming. Right. Yep, and it's and if you read through that, there's parts of the book where he's talking to some of the people who are, um, whose job it is to summarize the report. You know, it's such a, it's an intergovernmental agency that's putting this report together. And so this person's job is to summarize, write a 40-page summary. Hmm. And he's talking, his name was, I think, Tio or something. He's maybe Danish, or, um, but he was describing the process. And he said, it's difficult when you're writing that because... Everybody knows that when you write the, when you write the summary, the only thing that people are going to read is the summary. And so, what is it that? And usually, they're not going to read forty pages or report forty pages. They're going to report a paragraph or right. a line right. from forty pages of summary of a report. And so he says there's this competition essentially to say what is the worst and most extreme outcome, so that your part of the research gets mentioned. Right. And then he says there's a very real there's a real sense of awareness that the media is going to take the most extreme um, portion of the summary, which is a summary of a report, which is the extreme parts, and then they take the extreme parts of the extreme parts, and that's what makes it to the media, yeah. and that's why it gets plastered everywhere. And so um, so he was just describing, again, like you said, you don't, we don't understand that process unless there's someone like Michael Schellenberger, who, to great expense in, to himself, ha writes a book about this and describes what's going on because... As we mentioned, the science is settled in most places, and any dissent gets you in, in, in hot water. But as Christians, as people trying to say, how do we salt the earth? We have to, in everything we talk about, navigate the 
well, who, what's the political information? Like, what's the political influences? What are yeah. the, what are the industrial influences? What are the corporate media? Here's what we want you to, to, to eyeball. How do we get your eyeballs? On right. Our, what's driving the messaging? That's right. Yep. Yep. And so that's an important element. But, um, so I couldn't recommend, recommend his book enough, but, but if we end up where we end up, okay, well, it's not an existential threat, then the conversation, it, it's important because if it is, if people believe it's an existential threat and there's people who don't believe it, you know, an existential threat requires an existential solution, mm. right? It's a, it's, if it's such a huge problem, then there has to be solutions. And that's, I think, where some of the, okay, well, the research is all well and good, but how do we actually live this out? And that's where the rubber meets the road for most people and it starts in, impacting our lives in terms of what are the solutions and how do right. they impact us? Right. Um, and, how, and, and and why wouldn't everybody who isn't a you know climate change denier why wouldn't everybody embrace the solutions if it means preserving and right. protecting the existence of their the their species yep exactly and there's some pretty extreme solutions i mean if you look at i mean some of the research you did like the kyoto protocols is kind of like the precursor to the paris climate agreement which everyone talks about now but they they were describing essentially how much it would cost to reduce global CO2 emissions is essentially what the goal for everybody is. Um, they said it's somewhere between 10 and $50 trillion to reduce the, to reduce the global temperature. If they met those marks to reduce the global temperature by 0.07 degrees Celsius, oh my goodness. which is again, 1.43 degrees further away, you know, <laughs> prevents that we're trying to avoid that one and a half yeah. degrees. So, then you go to the Paris Climate Agreement, and that goal is, again, to prevent the one-and-a-half degree Celsius increase. Um, but according to like someone like Climate Action Tracker, they say that the global carbon output would have to be reduced to zero, literally zero, by 2050 to actually achieve that. So in, in 30 years, 29 years, we're expected to have absolutely no CO2 wow. emissions globally of any kind, um, which has some really deep, profound implications for people, um, not only in the developed world, but also yeah. in the, you know, in the, in the, in the underdeveloped, poorest parts of the world. Hmm. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I've heard a lot of um, critics of these environmental activists too, that have noticed a profound disconnect between what they're preaching and what they're practicing right. personally, right? right? So they believe that there's an existential threat you need to do something. The governments need to do something. And then in their own lives, I've noticed that, um, I mean, it's like every other week someone's hollering, oh, hypocrite, hypocrite. Right. It's, I mean, if you pay attention, right, I mean, look at the people who are advocates. I mean, think of someone like Leonardo DiCaprio, right? He's a pretty famous climate activist. He's the great Gatsby. That's right. He is the great Gatsby. And he's also uh, other wonderful characters that I love. Um, Gilbert Grape. Gilbert What's Grape. What's Gilbert Grape is a great character. Yeah, it was like one of his early ones. He really yeah, crushed it. Um, and what is he doing? He's jet setting around the world, flying to climate summits in private jets. And it's pretty funny when, like, even like Davos, right, where all the billionaires and world leaders go, they say in their platform, "Well, this is climate change is one of the most important things." Meanwhile, there's like 150 private jets that fly in there. Yeah, and yeah. you're like, wait a minute, that seems a little hypocritical. Right. Or even, I mean, look at someone like the Obamas, right, who who made a the Paris climate agreement was a big deal as he when he was president and the idea that this is you know this is a dire existential threat but then they spend 12 million dollars on a martha's vineyard home that's on the shore 
right? And you look at where do all the super rich people live? Well, they live on the coast, right? And if the if we're all screwed and the oceans are going to rise 13 feet, wouldn't you think that that's a pretty bad investment? Um, yeah. Wow. So, wow. So between you know the the rich and famous who are jet setting around saying climate change is terrible, while pri- while taking private jets, it, it seems. You know, it kind of detracts and detracts from their credibility when you think of, do they actually believe this? So you start questioning the motives. Boy, it does make you wonder if they believe it, right? I remember, I mean, John Kerry's been very, um, he's been on the front lines yeah. of this cause too, right? And and uh, he's regularly scrutinized for the way that he emits yeah. um, CO2. Yeah. Yep. And so when we get down to it, there's profound implications on policies, right? If you look at the infrastructure bill, that's, and there's a lot of, like the green new deal, lots of green new deal stuff in the infrastructure bill. And, um, but it has implications for normal everyday human beings, uh, but it also has implications for, well, with these giant existential solutions to the giant existential threat, um, this is kind of where it, it means why should, Christians care about it. This mm. is kind of where again at the the base level, why should Christians care about it? And really it's there's a couple points of why we should care about it. Is first is that when you are describing an existential threat, then you are inducing what they are what people are actually calling echo or eco anxiety. Mm. Which there's a growing sense of stress and anxiety amongst our emerging generation z millennials so so the messaging is landing with with gen z and gen x yeah so the people are wait gen x no gen z millennials yeah Yeah, okay millennials yeah yeah. yeah. um so people are actually growing stress and anxiety and anxious about this about the future destruction of our earth and so well, that's one reason why Christians should care about it, because we certainly don't want to <laughs> induce anxiety in people. Um, and there's an interesting survey of 16 to 25-year-olds in 10 countries, 100,000 or 10,000 people. Um, they actually said 59% of those those people were worried or very, extremely worried or very worried about the climate. Wow. And uh, on the other side, 16% were either not worried or a little bit so worried. So 6 out of 10 of the 16 to 25-year-olds consider it something to be extremely or very worried yes. about. Yep. Wow. And 45% of all respondents said their worries affected their daily what? lives. What? Yeah. So What? So for even oh for those of us who don't think about climate change as a normal as like a huge existential threat, it is the continual repetition of that and embracing of that um and it induces anxiety and yeah. then and then the question is well how do you I mean how do you it it, it then it becomes that's how it kind of turns into like a moral ethical conversation and less about a just an environmental uh, policy conversation where you you emerge into things like climate justice and you're like well if we're if we're built we're it's an we're doing an injustice to the next generation if we don't address it right um and then that kind of emerges and you can actually there's actually been like 1300 lawsuits brought to against people mm-hmm. because they're they're harming the future right unjust climate. yes uh, treatment yeah of the yep. future yep wow and ultimately it ultimately becomes a quote-unquote least of these issue for the christian for the christian yeah okay. for as we as christians we think of well, what's the least of these what issue? is that phrase for those yeah, who so aren't quite yeah. sure so we're supposed to right consider the least of these right i mean like who are the people that um you know the widows orphans like who do we take care of that really can't take care of themselves okay. and who do we consider right um, and really there's, this is where the, this is where the, the both sides kind of hits for, for Christians. Cause one side, when you think of the existential threat, 
the the path to the existential threat is mostly argued that it is the most vulnerable and poorest people mm. who are hurt and most right. disproportionately affected by climate change. Right, because they can't do anything about right. it. Right, and they can't adapt, adapt to it oh. because they can't build the infrastructure, you know, oh. so. Um, but, and, and they're living in impoverished areas and they're they're going to, you know, their ability to produce food will be reduced and they can't, all sorts of different so, things. So essentially the bourgeoisie, right, the upper class in the world is producing this problem. Right, yes. And the problem, the, the people who are suffering from that problem uh, are the lower class, right? They're the ones who are getting most affected, their livelihood, their food sources, their children's right. children, uh, or the children and their and their grandchildren. They're the ones who are going to um, incrementally or, or in, um, increasingly get yeah. uh, damaged or yep. affected. Absolutely. Like they can't build the infrastructure to prevent flooding from I a see. hurricane or they, you know, they can't. They don't have the industrial strength farming system that helps okay. navigate the, you know, a, a famine or something. So like that, that would right? be, does that help us understand, you and why the phrase environmental injustice or, yes. or whatever you, what did you say it was? Climate really? justice. Climate yep. justice, yeah. Yep, that exactly. Makes sense. And there's a, you know, you'll, you might hear terms like climate equity and stuff like that would, would come into it. Because the whole conversation is, well, there's people, you know, our decisions are impacting, negatively impacting people. Right. Um, at a disproportionate rate, right? So like so like um, in the apartment complex, the penthouse um, resident or tenant is smoking and the side stream smoking is flowing down into the bottom apartments. Right. Yeah. Right. And they can't, they live down there. There's nothing they can do to fix it. They can't move away. Yep. Because they can't afford to move away, and the landlord doesn't care because right. that penthouse person is playing, paying all the rent. And, right. Yeah. yeah. So the so the climate there would be experiencing a sense of injustice. Yep. Exactly. I uh, get it. Yep. And so that's like one side, but the other side of the argument actually makes some pretty strong cases for this, for the it being a least of these argument as well, because um, there is an argument made that. Um, when you impose, because it's an existential threat, you impose existential solutions, which are massively massive spending plans and um, investments in you know, renewable energies. There is a case to be made that it is, in fact, the most vulnerable who are hurt by those policies and by those extreme policies to reduce CO2 emissions to zero, which hmm. is what they've said will take, because... It is the poorest developing countries who are most in need of inexpensive, reliable energy to lift them out of mm. their current poverty situation. And they are... And that's one of Schellenberger's big, yes. big points, right? Yep. That's one of his... And he, he approaches it from a human... It's a human issue, right? And it's... And if the, the fact is that it's not, in fact, a we're going to die, it's going to kill everybody in eight to ten years, right? You don't have to apply these extreme solutions because you're hurting... We're on the other side of an industrial revolution, right? We have on the other side of having access to clean, or not, sorry, clean, but um, inexpensive, reliable energy. So we built our infrastructure. We built all sorts of things. And now we're saying, well, no, we're going to force the entire world to go renewable, which mm. isn't, it's, it's not to the point where it's efficient and reliable and ex inexpensive enough gotcha. to help a developing country. And when you think of the impact on people, <clears throat> lifting people out of poverty, it's, they need it's energy. A, it's a market. It's the infrastructure. It's all. Yeah, they need, it's it's energy. Yeah. It's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So he's saying that it is it is as a matter of climate justice. It's 
it's unjust or unjust to take away cheap, reliable energy from people who need it the most and who need it to climb out of poverty. Exactly. And he is saying because he, in his research, he doesn't see it as an existential threat. So all of these solutions that are mm. get the emissions down to zero, he said those aren't those are inaccurate starting points. And, and, and they're going to hurt the people they're intended correct, to help. Exactly. Wow. <coughs> I guess that makes sense. So he, his actually solution, which is, our, which again, is unique in that he, he recommends nuclear. He's a big nuclear proponent. Um, oh. And he says nuclear is clean, reliable, um, and produces abundant amounts of energy for people, um, which is an interesting, a whole other conversation about thanking God for the ability to yeah. split the... Right. fuse or fission the atom right nuclear fusion nuclear and live fission, to tell right? about it yeah exactly so so again we that's kind of where we land on what's both sides why do christians care about it it's because is it an existential threat probably not um if it's not or if it if it is viewed as that it is that has implications for policy and um solutions but if it's not then how do we as christians go about living as, in this climate of uh-huh. climate of climate change um and what does it look like for us so yeah i mean how can we change the way we look at it because i think if you are engaged in some way and when you hear the climate change activists go off the rails unhinged that this is existential there's a clock it's counting down to our ultimate dem- demise right yeah. uh here's the knee-jerk reaction these people are conspiracy theorists, they're crazy, they're political hacks, or sure. uh, all they want to do is take from me those things that I need. Right. And then topic is is dismissed. Yep. Right? Yep. And I think that's probably a fair way to describe a lot of people's reaction. I don't believe it's existential, therefore I, I don't even think about the topic. Right. And right. I, funny, Donald Trump said, it's called weather. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. Like, that's talking about the extreme opposite, right? Yeah. It's like, well, right, you've just reduced it to what happens in a day or an hour that you can't predict in the hour of the day, right? Right. It's probably not the best way to go about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, when you think about how we should, I mean, we're, if we're biblical people, we're gospel people, and we're trying to consider how do we salt the earth, I think the first step is to actually consider this topic very carefully. I think it's a mistake to dismiss it because the people who are advancing the topic are your political adversaries. In other words, just because of the source of the argument is who they are or who you think they are doesn't justify ignoring the topic altogether, right? The topic is still worth considering very carefully because it's a a biblical topic. and you can't let your political opponents steal the topic or steal the value of it or erase the need to engage the topic just because you can already tell by their tone and their urgency that you don't agree with them. Yep. So disagreement cannot enable my disengagement. Yeah. Ooh, did just you just, you just I literally that? just thought of that. Wow. End it. Let's Stop wrap it. Let's wrap, right it. Now. <laughs> Let's wrap it. Yeah. yeah, so your disagreement cannot enable or kind of be a catalyst to your disengagement so so when we look at when we look at genesis chapter one we see this just astonishing orderliness to creation the the beauty and the fruitfulness of the world that god has formed and 
we all kind of know this already if you're uh, if you're following Jesus and you have a Christian worldview that God gave human beings who are his image bearers the task of filling the earth and exercising dominion over this is Genesis chapter 1 so the earth is in the beginning creation story and so are human beings and their relationship with the earth is is described in Genesis chapter 1 so there the human race has a designed purpose, lots of design purposes. One of the design purposes, which can be described as a vocation, is to steward and cultivate the Creator's good creation. The creation that God describes as good is to be overseen by humans. Uh, so it's important that we don't seek uh, to endorse or dispute the science surrounding climate change. Instead, um, society has settled on only one way to tell the story, and they've landed on one explanation for the physical pain of the earth or the climate. And if, uh, as if natural disasters are on some kind of trial as to what side there are they red disasters or are they blue disasters right, right are yeah. they are they working for one political agenda or another um, so we have to be very careful that we see a bigger story than just hey you're the one you're a human and you're wrecking everything uh, there's a there's a bigger story there and the story includes a clear and compelling strategy for attacking climate change and and i'm going to start really this description yon with one word and our, i hope our audience is able to kind of grasp this as their mind maybe is wandering but you have to grasp this word to understand the biblical worldview for transforming the culture in this area and it's the word stewardship hmm. i'm not sure if it's a word that's used very often outside the christian church or the christian family yeah. i don't really know but i know inside the christian family it means something and we have to grasp what it means stewardship basically means being over something uh, in the old testament the uh, a steward would be a man who is placed in authority over a house and in the New Testament, there's two words that are translated steward, and um, uh, one of those means to care for something that has been entrusted to you or to honor something that has been entrusted to you. So it's a guardian kind of a uh, relationship with that item, and uh, it is someone who manages that property or manages that item, and the word is used to describe the function of a delegated responsibility. So um, that is just a critical word for us to understand, that we've been given something. We don't own it. God gave it to us. It's called the earth, and he expects that we would be a steward of it. We would manage it. We would oversee it. We would basically honor it in the New Testament. That's the word. Yeah. And that we would um, care for it. Yeah. It's been entrusted to us by God. So we're a guardian of the earth. That's important. So we're image bearers of God. And then he said, I'm going to create this thing, and it's yours to oversee. Right. And so if you miss the stewardship idea, you you can justify your own disengagement for what happens to the earth. Right, which it, makes it 
unconscionable and not even an option to just disengage from the conversation and just yes. cede it to the political parties and the activists and say, okay, well, you get, you all figure it out. I'm yeah, and I can, I mean, I can certainly understand and very much empathize with anybody who says, I don't understand it, so I'm out. Right. Sure. Or, I don't agree, so I'm out. Or you just say, well, we'll leave it to the experts. They clearly yeah. understand what we're doing, so we'll just listen to them. We'll just blindly do whatever they say. Right. right? And we're certainly in a culture where um, for every chart that the the left side produces the right side produces another opposite yep. chart yeah right so the misinformation the uh, 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 i think the trump administration at the very very beginning of their campaign was using this phrase alternative facts that's right yeah alternative facts have been provided so yeah. that's why uh, we don't we don't agree so it makes it so confusing so confusing but in the christian worldview stewardship is not ownership so we don't own the earth we don't own the resources they don't belong to ours when we turn on the electricity it's not our electricity. It's not National Grid's electricity. The earth belongs to God, and he's given it to us to steward. And also, dominion over the earth is not exploitation. Hmm. And those are, some, th- those are some main ideas that have to be processed. Um, so a Christian perspective on the environment um, brings us to four Christian truths. Okay, and, that, and, I, I, and again, I, I, this is like, a, like an overview and... Um, I do my best to kind of talk through them as briefly as I can. But number one, uh, four Christian truths on the environment begin with number one, which is the doctrine of theism and creation. Well, what does that mean? It means that in the creation narrative, everything God made was good. So we have these good resources. We have this good earth. We have this good uh, um, elements. And and maybe think of the periodic table of elements. All the elements in which God has created the earth is all good. And the Christian God claims in the narrative, in the worldview, to rule over all creation. In fact, all the universe. Right. Um, I love that passage where, um, where God is described as one who is so infinite and so supreme that he can rest his, his foot on the universe as his footstool. Right. And that the natural events that are occurring on the planet are not outside of his control. So yeah. that is important. So that's the doctrine of theism and creation. God created it. It's all good. Uh, he, incre- he created it on purpose for our uh, enjoyment and for his glory, for our good is a good phrase. Right. And nothing is outside of his control. The second uh, truth, the Christian truth that helps us understand the environment and climate change is the word dominion. Uh, again, I've mentioned this as more of a stewardship word, or, or you could really kind of interchange those, I suppose. But it's basically this, that, that we as human beings are God's crowning achievement. Mm. We are not a parasite on nature. We are not recklessly undermining by our existence as humans. We are not ruining the earth because we exist. Right, yeah. God has created humans as his crowning achievement to cultivate the earth. And then there's also a, a, there's a kingdom principle at work too, which is you reap what you sow, hmm. right? So we have this earth, and if you uh, sow bad things, you get bad results. If you sow good things, you get good results. And that generally can be, I think, um, can be attributed to how it works as we're cultivating the earth. So uh, nature relative to you you reap what you sow when you properly care for it in the long term is self-sustaining right the seeds grow to fruit you harvest the fruit the seeds are replanted 
and you get a self-sustaining, self-propelling, mm. because that's how God intended right, it to yeah. be. You reap what you sow, you, and, and that's especially true in agriculture. So we know that God's providence never stops upholding. It never stops guiding the world. He created it that way. But God has made our world as an integrated system with one thing built upon another. Humans have to interact with the earth properly to get the fruitfulness that God designed us to get. And every piece has a role to play. So we're to manage the earth, not to ravage it, right? If you ravage a patch of earth that's supposed to be a farm, it is possible to destroy that farmland, right? It has to be cultivated and it has to be invested in, cared for, and and curated in in the right way in order to get the harvest that God intended it to yield uh, in the right season. So every piece has a has a role to play. Um, if we choose to steward well or to take dominion over the earth well, we are compelled to give back to offer the first fruits for the next year's harvest, yep. so that we can build on what we've accomplished. And in doing so, we exercise humility, and in the process, we understand the earth better. We uh, we are wise as we cultivate our family and our wealth and our food. Um, and so that is all vital. And yeah, it's pretty, it's actually pretty incredible when you think of, I like the word humility. I mean, like, I mean, that can sum up m- the problem with most people's approach to how they treat the earth and how yeah. we engage it. And it's like, well, there's a level of humility to say, you know, I'm going to, this earth's been around for a long time. And do we, for for the temporary, do something that's going to cause, and that's one thing you can empathize with activists, and you say, well, yeah. it is generational. You can cause generational, irre, yeah, yeah. irreducible irre, harm, right? Uh, irreplaceable harm mm-hmm. to something that's beautiful, right? right. You, say, you say, well, my kids and someone else can't, and I do it for the temporary benefit because I'm proud and like this is the best thing to yeah. do and just exercise a little bit of humility and say, yeah. well, maybe not. I actually feel that way about the inhumane treatment of animals. While I believe because of the Christian narrative that those animals have been placed on the earth as a part of that which we um, uh, oversee, or maybe I should use the word that which we take dominion over, yeah. dominion does not mean exploiting the animals, right. cruelty to animals. Yep. It doesn't mean mass slaughter with inhumane practices. It doesn't mean experimentation on animals. Why? Because the Christian narrative says God created those things and they're good things. And it takes a level of humility to to take dominion um, as an image bearer of God, yeah. right? There's got to be humility. It can't be reckless, um, really empty-headed, heartless dominion over the earth. Right. So it is not humble to be inhumane to animals while it's not biblical to believe that we ought to hold up those animals and worship them, submit right. to them, or yep. otherwise care about their well-being above our own as the human species, right? right? And, so that's... Yeah, and there's a, I mean, that first point of theism being a foundational element, I mean, that's when I think of these two points together. It's the Christian worldview versus the, you know, the the atheistic you know, evolution, right? Survival of the fittest. Like we get to the pinnacle and suddenly the, the top of the pyramid is the is the humans and they can do whatever they want to, to survive because they're the fittest, right? And whatever they want goes. And it kind of take it removes the, the moral obligation to treat and steward, right? And then that's why most people, you have a villain of a, of a, of a secret, like a secret service, like a Bond movie who's trying to do a 
put a plague out there to eliminate all the humans on earth so that because they're a parasite right and they're they're sucking the earth clean or sucking the earth dry it's like it's like well that's a profoundly different way of seeing things than we're not just the top of the food chain and can do whatever we want because we're the fittest but we're also not a parasite that the earth needs to get rid of and we're we're just exploiting everything because it needs to get rid of us and it's it seems a more compelling picture of of the world now we approach it yeah and i think that's important that if we don't get that straight we can very easily invert the design by which god in, had intended right we serve the creature yeah the creature is to serve the needs of the human but in a humane way because of humility yeah for sure so the the third part of the theology the theological approach to this topic is that there is so so the first one is right this the idea of creation second one is dominion and stewardship and the third one is this idea or this doctrine of the fall and the fall affects humans we know that right it's sin it's original sin humans now are just born into this we've inherited this sinful approach to life which is independence from god self-reliance self-righteousness save yourself live for yourself live for your own glory rebel against god uh, basically, you're your own God living for your own glory. Um, and, and But but also the fall includes the impact on nature. The world is no longer the Garden of Eden. Uh, and we can really um, destroy things and mess up creation based on the fact that we are sinful and the wor- and, and the earth now is no longer as it's intended to be. So uh, certainly someone can deny that climate change is actual, but certainly at the same time, no one can believe that on the basis of some theological um, priority or some theological whim that negative climate change is impossible. Because of the fall, sure. you cannot believe that climate change is impossible. Or because of the fall... You have to believe that climate change is possible, right? Right, because sure. of because of uh, it's no longer as God intended it to be in its perfection. So uh, we get this idea in the scripture in the book of Romans that I think is helpful to this conversation, Yon, and that is that the earth is described as having labor pains. Mm. The earth is groaning with these labor pains. It says in the book of Romans, and. It's important to see those labor pains as a means of warning. It's an advanced warning. So according to the scripture, disease, natural disasters are not blind effects with blind causes. They are divinely inspired visual aids mm. to kind of help us see the ultimate reality that is happening around us that we would miss if this was not occurring, mm. if these diseases yeah. and if these disasters were not happening. So, and we know that God are, God, God bears responsibility for all of Earth's calamity right sin generates a lot of consequential things but ultimately god is in control he's overseeing all things holds all thing all things together and according to the bible disease and natural disasters um, are in fact helping us to see reality they are flashing lights designed to save us so to speak from a greater catastrophe so jesus calls war disease he says natural disasters are like labor pains uh, uh so if they're flashing lights if they're labor pains if they are the um in, in in a highway situation where there's danger ahead it's the it's the warning lights that are saying slow down um 
they're actually the kindness of God to help us mm. see what's coming. They're like a contraction that tells you to pack your bags and run to the hospital. They're like a fever spike and a loss of taste that sends you to the ER for what could be a COVID infection. They're like an advanced warning system that tells you, um, you know, to seek higher ground uh, or head to the basement. A tornado is coming. A tsunami wave is coming. So when we think about what's happening to the earth, it's important to see it as a signal, a warning ahead of time by God's mercy, by his grace, that the earth is not going to remain forever, that we're expiring people, that there's an expiration of humanity. Um, One author, Elliot uh, Clark, wrote about uh, the religion of any and and every kind um, of, uh, every and any kind of religion is basically you can identify religion by the way it generates blame and shame. So that's why, I mean, I'm struck, Yon, by the intensity of the environmentalist activism, yeah. and I'm struck especially by the way that it generates and the way that it uses to motivate people blame and shame. Yeah. And Elliot Clark is is um, wrote about that um, in in one of their books. Wrote about how he remember like 20 years ago when Americans were reeling from the AIDS epidemic, and and he writes about the. Uh, he lists the Hurricane Katrina and 9-11 and evangelical pastors and popular televangelists were absolutely incinerated for their words that suggested that all of these calamities can be can be explained this way. It's the judgment of God. Do you remember the tsunami, right? The tsunami, I think it was in Japan, yeah. and then you got Katrina, and then all these preachers are out there saying, well, you know what it is? It's the judgment of God. And, and, and those... Those preachers were, in effect, they're blaming us for the devastating forms and the illnesses that are happening around the, the, the world and the terrorist attacks. And such religious commentary and speculation, if that were practiced today, would people, would, people definitely describe that as toxic. I mean, I would too, right? That's sure. toxic. Um, but essentially we would describe what they've done and what they've said, blaming people for these natural disasters as spiritual abuse. It, sure. it causes us to kind of say, it just recoils. and say, I don't care. Nothing that that person says is believable based on that. Because and ultimately they're trying to change your behavior. Right? Exactly. They're, they're manipulating this is, you. This is judgment and right. this is going to happen again. So clean up you, your so act. clean up and change your... So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yet at the same time, Elliot Clark points out that someone's got to wonder if the constant fear-mongering and finger-pointing on the topic of climate change in our day is not somehow also toxic for our culture, shouldn't we call that material abuse? I think sure. that's insightful, right? Yeah. If it's spiritual abuse to say that God is sending all these disasters, it's material abuse to say that you're causing all these disasters. Sure. And that's it's not, on you. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at the numbers and you think, well, what... Why would someone advocate twelve years, eight years, and it's an existential threat? We're all going to die, right? That's a that's an eschatological right. framework. You're saying literally this is the end of the world, and why would someone do that if, as we looked at, it's not true? And why is there why would there not be a a similar outrage saying, I, "Why are you saying that? Why are you doing that to our kids?" As we saw right. in the research, why are you why are you abusing them? emotionally and mentally and right. causing this anxiety why because you want them to behave a certain way that's right and, it's, and it it begs the question for sure yeah and it does provide at least in my view quite a bit of evidence that environmentalism is a religion sure and it's a religion that has 
one of the motives, one of the drivers in the religion is to change your behavior. And one of the methods to get that behavior to change is blame and shame. Mm-hmm. It's finger pointing and fear mongering. And that's important for us to recognize that all religions that, of course, are not the gospel center religions use fear and blame and shame to manipulate outcomes or behaviors. Yeah, it's very fundamentalist and very dogmatic. Yes. And, it, and that is, and you can kind of perceive that by the level of dissent, which is allowed, quote unquote, right. allowed. Right. Yeah. If there's no dissent allowed, the science is settled, then you've got a good, pretty good indication that it's a, it's heading in that dogmatic, fundamental religion, environmentalism area. Right. Yeah. So. Exactly. Um, and we can see this every single day in our kind of our news cycle that goes on and on 24-7 that are scientific gurus and we have political preachers and they're burying us. They're burying each other with shame and guilt. And then they tell us how we're responsible to dig ourselves out of this. And climate change is not just a human consequence or really it's not even just a divinely given labor pain. The earth is awaiting something better after all this trouble. And this is a part of the Christian narrative is, and this is why there's so much joy in the Christian community, at least there ought to be about the future. It's because all those labor pains that the earth is groaning with, right? All of those natural disasters and some of the, some of the ways in which we're watching, um, uh, the impact of, uh, what some would call uh, climate change. The earth is waiting for something better. And the fourth Christian doctrine that that the biblical worldview describes is restoration and redemption, that Jesus, the new Adam, foreshadows the kingdom that's coming and the church in his body. So the Christian worldview of creator and creation describes how it all ends. And it ends not with the collapse of the planet or the death of the human race, or the extinction of the human race, or the bursting into flames based on the, um, you know, not the melting of the ice cap. So all these things that were being threatened to say, hey, look, this is going to happen. So eight years, 12 years or, 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 or less, there, th- this doomsday prediction is inconsistent with how the Christian worldview right. describes how it all ends. It ends, according to the Christian worldview, with restoration and redemption. Mm-hmm. That means a new life, a new creation here in the earth, a new climate, uh, a world where there's no more crying and sorrow and pain, no more death. It's actually the opposite of what's being predicted by these um, activists. So when these activists are preaching doom and gloom, it's going to end, it's going to end ugly. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be worried we don't have to be anxious mm-hmm. that the end of the world is in our hands, Yon. Right. It's in the hands of the creator who created the world. Right. And he's going to see it through according to the way he's described it, which is a world that's only possible because God in Jesus was willing to take our blame, both spiritually and also materially. He, took, he's take, he takes responsibility for the way that the climate right. is and the way that the, the world um, is, is functioning right. today. I think it's, a, it's pretty... I mean, what's incredible is when you think of something that we can empathize with the climate activists is that when you look around and the, you can look around and you can say, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Right. right? And quite yeah. honestly, if you haven't been to a developing country and you haven't seen the piles of garbage yes. and the plastic and the, you know, or just a developing every, city in the U.S. Yeah, right exactly, now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you haven't seen that. Um, 
you know, it's heartbreaking when you look, when you, when you, yep. and, and, and so, yeah, of course those are real. When you look around, you have to say something is broken. Right? right. And if you don't have anything that describes what it is other than human exploitation, and there is plenty of industrial level exploitation of this world yes. when you look around. Um, and the irony is that we have all this great theology and yet lots of us are just very much disengaged, right? And we're yeah. just like, no, you're just climate activists. And so let's turn, like you said earlier, I think you just shut them off, right? We just disengage yeah. because of their approach. And we can really empathize with, okay, the world's not what it's supposed to be. But it's also in the hands of a God who created it, called it good, and and cares more about it probably than we do. Exactly. So, yeah. And I think the key question then becomes this. How can we be responsible stewards and apply these theological truths or this Christian narrative the way that we believe it to be? How can we actually apply these principles, especially this principle of stewardship? Number one, we have to apply it this way. We have to participate in the stewardship of the earth. We cannot ignore it because we disagree with the way it's being described by activists um, or we disagree with the intensity of it, right? So, so we we have to engage in stewardship. I'm, I'm, I'm mind, it actually brings to mind this parable that Jesus tells uh, uh, that he he describes. Um, he's describing these servants, and they're each given a portion of something, right? And mm-hmm. and um, and he expects that they're going to go invest what he's given. They're called talents, and. Um, what we see Jesus do is to um, send them out, see what they do with their talents, and when they come back, everybody does something with their talents to oversee it, to manage it, to multiply it, and then God, and then Jesus gives them feedback, and he says to all of them, well done, good and faithful servant, except for the one who buries it and doesn't do anything with the talent. In other words, they oversee this talent um, and fail to steward it. Right. They fail to multiply, cultivate it, cultivate yeah. it to, yeah. to produce something from it. And we see that Jesus is stern and um, we learn in that steward, in that in that um, parable, we learn that faithful stewardship in this life will result in being given even greater responsibility and stewardship in the life to come. Um, Jesus reinforces and reiterates that he expects people who are following him to manage and multiply the resources that he's given him. And uh, as as gospel people, Yon, um, we must engage in the caretaking and the cultivating of the earth. We don't have to turn it into a pseudo-religion. We don't have to... Uh, join a new political party. Um, and now I'm not saying this is my opinion and this is how I'm, uh, like I'm also some Christian environmentalist activist. I'm saying, I think I've said it several different ways, but uh, to be engaged biblically means to be engaged in stewardship and dominion over the earth. Christians, check this out. I, I, I think this is, I think I can say this safely. Christians should care more about the environment than any other people on the planet because our God created it. Yep. It didn't materialistically evolve from a big bang. There's, yep. it, it's not a meaningless mass of resources that we have to somehow um, now elevate and worship. Our God created it and gave it to us. We're in charge of it. It should mean more to us than any other person on the planet right. based on our uh, understanding of how, how 
how it all yeah. was created. And the way we manage it directly impacts people. Yes, right? exactly. The way exactly. we cultivate it and steward it is not only just I do it f- be- I do it for the good of the earth because God's entrusted, but it's good for our fellow people. And it's a way of taking care of people and saying, how do I cultivate it and use my quote unquote talents and all this great stuff and all of this incredible scientific discovery and, and use it to the betterment of humankind, not for the exploitation of other. Exactly. You think about it. Every drop of water and every grain of soil uh, was created. Every, every bit of it is sustained by the word, right? God planted the Garden of Eden, and then God placed Adam and Eve inside of it, yet it was always his. And if someone entrusts us with something valuable and we purposefully break it, abuse it, or ruin it through willful neglect, I mean, it's immoral to do that. And we've sinned against the person that we've done that to. So failure to care for God's world is a sin, and it requires repentance. So imagine at the end of this podcast, Yon, here's, here's one thing that I think is important. As application... If we have had some hostile relationship with those resources that God has created, it should be a matter of repentance for us because God has given given us these resources and this earth to take care of. In terms of worldview, if materialism is true, one author said, then neither this universe, this world, nor any people at all have any significance. But if Christianity is true, literally everything matters every resource matters every uh, every source of energy matters every uh, grain of sand matters and so on so christians recognize that nature is creation the enormous importance of this recognition and its implications certainly can't be exaggerated the world has to be cared for because it's god's property and he gave humans the responsibility to oversee it and uh, my you know, one of my takeaways as we're talking through this is is I have to be more conscious um, and I have to be more alert to the ways in which the things that I have, the things that I own, the things that I cultivate uh, are being cared for. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm a, as you know, I'm a uh, big coffee drinker and I, I wouldn't say, I mean, people tease me about being a coffee snob or a coffee expert and I'm, and I'm, ab- I'm actually not when you, when you know what a real coffee expert is, but I will say I take my coffee drinking serious, mm-hmm. right? And it, it seems that the biblical worldview helps engage me enough to care about where my beans come from. How, sure. how are coffee beans um, cultivated and harvested and who's doing it? And if mm-hmm. it's slave labor, if it's child labor, yep. if it's unfairly done, yep. uh, I don't have to give my whole life to advocating, but I ought to be alert to that, and I ought to participate. Yep. Yeah. It's a. It's a. You know, the the parable of the talents is good because I mean, it's very easy to just bury it in the ground, right, and go about your life. Yeah. And I think that is when you think of the American twenty first century American world where which we live. I mean just the consumerism and kind of going mindlessly through our days and not having any intentionality or understanding how, where does my food come from? Like I can buy some, I can buy beef, even though the price is up, I can buy it on the shelf. Where does it come from? How do you treat those animals? How do you treat the employees? How do you treat the, you know, the, the, are you clear cutting forests in Brazil to make the corn for the feet? Yeah. It's like all these different things you say, well, right. When you live in a global 
supply chain, a global economy, you have to start asking questions about what am I doing and am I doing things intentionally? But it's hard. It's not easy to do. It's much easier just to say, I'm just going to go about my life. And, you know, I'm not a farmer. I'm not an expert, yada, yada, yada. But we should be we should be known for how much we care about the earth yeah. and how much we advocate for the, the, we don't have to be alarmist or activist, but yeah. even if you're a Christian, you're like, I work with polar bears and I, I want to ring the bell on polar bears, even though that has kind of been debunked a little bit, but it's like, well, there's a problem. I'm going to ring the bell. Then yeah. you can, then that's a good thing. Go ahead and do it. But right. the alarmism, sure. Um, but then the apathy, the other end is, is like you said, it's, it, it's a sin, right? You know, I like that. Did you just think of that apathy and alarmism? I did. Yeah. That, uh, see, mm-hmm. I mean, this, both of us divinely inspired today. I know. But think of those think of those extremes, apathy, alarmism. Christians, it's unconscionable for Christians to be alarmists because God's over all things. Yep. And uh, human beings cannot destroy forever something God's created to be renewed and restored in the end. And also, apathy is unforgivable, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's not unforgivable. Yeah. It's unconscionable. No, it's unforgivable. That's right. Unpardonable sin. Landed. Uh, apathy is is also equally as disturbing because we are we are overseeing God's property yep. and God has given us this earth to 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 cultivate and oversee and to take dominion over and to be good stewards of. So, I think uh, I think we said it. We landed uh, on such good stuff that sadly yeah. no one's listening anymore. That's I'm right. Just joking. <laughs> okay, personal preferences. Let's do it. Sports ball. Um, what? I mean, talk about a cultivated little patch of grass you go to any mm. beautiful sports ball stadium and if it's natural grass it's talk about how do you get the best you can almost feel it and smell it yeah um it doesn't necessarily have to be a patch of grass i guess but what's your sports ball go to your personal preference yeah i will say this in my life i've played more baseball softball my favorite sport to play is probably volleyball if it's not like you know gym class volleyball uh, it's action-packed and fast. In the summer, I love to have Yankees games on as kind of the background of an evening, you know, to listen to that that crowd noise just humming and then an occasional bit of action. But I think I've come to understand about myself that what I enjoy most is an NFL football game. And uh, obviously, I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, but as far as sports ball goes, I think I love watching football, playing volleyball, and relaxing to baseball. Hmm. Well, yeah, I just thought of that. Yeah, you just really. Yeah. <laughs> well, my answer's not as deep. I just like watching soccer. How did that? Ha- how did you get into? How did you get into football as a? I don't know. I've always, I've always loved it. I never. I. I played, played a little bit it? when I was a kid, but I grew up playing hockey, so it's not even a ball. Uh-huh. And then I played basketball in college and played a little bit of soccer. But there's just something about the atmosphere when you watch a game mm. and it's like watch a match. It's just like the crowd's always going. The hostility, not, you mean? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's 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 the, the beautiful game, right? So it's. A, I mean, not a ton of scoring, but there's mm. a lot of strategy, and you got to watch the, everything's a build up. Everything's so it's just. Um, and I don't. I like World Cup and stuff like that, but I don't. Tournament soccer is different than mm. when you're watching a league. I'm a Tottenham Hotspur supporter in the Premier League, and so you're like watching these. I mean, it's crazy. There's r- rivalries and derbies and all these certain things. So it's I like watching that, and I get to watch it in the morning. You know, I don't have to spend all day Ooh. watching. I get to wake up early, watch it, and then uh, go about my day. So either yeah. they ruin my weekend on a Saturday morning by losing, yeah, 
uh, and they've completely ruined it and have to wait till Sunday uh, or have a great day. Great That's weekend. A good. That's actually a good point. I, I think that one of my favorite parts of soccer is that you get to actually watch sports ball without commercial interruption. Yeah. It's nice. the, the 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 bad part about being an NFL football fan is the absolutely insane amount of commercial breaks. It sounds like eight percent or fourteen minutes of actual action. And I think it's less. Fl- yeah, it's I literally think it's yeah. less, and they pepper it with commercials and commercial breaks and and so on. But one of the secrets to overcoming that is a. Uh, internet cable provider or an internet television yeah. provider and just fast forward through those commercials man or, that makes I mean, a difference so record about, it record yeah. it and then play it back personal preferences nfl red zone channel that Ooh. is by far the only way i will watch i got a weekend freebie of it and was stunned how enjoyable yeah. that was i was like <laughs> literally just watching the best parts of a football game and yeah it's incredible i actually feel that way about watching soccer i just watch the build-ups and the goals i'd be content i don't need the in between yeah. the penalty boxes well, your opinion is useless. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, we are glad you're with us. Go buy yourself a glass bottle and reuse it. Ooh, take I like away? that. Yeah. No, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Um, thanks for joining us. Share it. Like it. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much for checking out the Salted Podcast. You can find other episodes and topics on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. Make sure you click follow so you'll get notifications whenever new episodes come out. Thanks for listening.